Hello and welcome to Proud to Be, the show that highlights veterans, military personnel, and family members published in Proud to Be, writing by American warriors, a creative writing anthology that preserves and shares our nation's military experience through poetry, fiction, essay, interviews, and photography. I'm your host, Lisa Carrico, and our guest for this episode is Billy Jenkins. Billy is Pittsburgh's based writer and a 28-year veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, where he retired as Sergeant Major. He is a City of Pittsburgh firefighter with over 22 years of service. In 2015, he earned his MFA in creative writing from Chatham University. In addition to writing nonfiction and essay, Billy is an actor and has appeared on TV and movies and on stage. Billy has been published in three of the 10 volumes, and today we will hear some of his thoughts and stories behind his PTB contributions. Well, Billy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lisa, so much for having me. Uh, being a part of this podcast and, and, and proud to be has been such an honor, so it's my pleasure to join you today. Oh, thank you so much, Billy. Uh, we uh, are thrilled to have you here today. Uh, I believe that I read that you enlisted in the Marines at age 17. What yeah. drew you to service at such a young age? Uh, I was 17. My father had been in the Marine Corps. And, and so growing up, uh, it was just in and around the house. Uh, uh, he obviously had left the Marine Corps after his service, uh, married my mother, uh, who happened to be a former Catholic nun. And so uh, that is like a whole other story. But uh, being raised in a household where service was, it just was always in the air. Um, joining the military was a, a foregone conclusion to me as a young, as a young boy. So uh, after high school, I just got on the, on the bus and the yellow footsteps and the rest is history. Awesome. And was your, uh, was your father supportive of this? Well, my father, you know, my, my mother was extremely supportive. She was shocked because I didn't tell her that the Marine recruiter was coming the day that he came to sign the papers. And my father uh, had passed when I was 14. So uh, I think that my writing, a lot of my pieces speak to his memory and how I remember uh, his interactions with me as a Marine. Um, but I, I'm, I'm sure somewhere he's looking down and extremely um, happy and proud. Well, tell us a little bit about your service. So I, I joined uh, back in 1992 at 17, uh, and I joined active duty. So my first two years, uh, I spent as a security guard uh, guarding uh, the Naval Air Station in Naples, Italy, 1718, which was, which was unbelievable to be 18 and in Italy uh, overseas at the time. Uh, and then my last two years were served uh, in the infantry uh, in Camp Lejeune, um, sleeping in the woods uh, and doing the whole active duty piece, including you know a, a six-month deployment to the Mediterranean. When I left active duty, I joined the reserves uh, and just stuck it out. I uh, was an MP, a military policeman, for about 15 years. Um, I earned the rank of first sergeant and then became the first sergeant of, of a few companies. Um, and then I earned the rank of sergeant major and and was able to retire at that rank. So I've been very blessed in my career. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with being able to say at the age of 18, you got to spend that time in Italy. No. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty amazing. I will tell you that one time my mother called me and she said, uh, this speaks to being 18 in Italy. And she said, what are you gonna do this weekend? And I said, 
ah, probably going to stay in the barracks. And she was like, don't you want to go to Rome? And I literally said, I've been to Rome. I don't need to go back. Like, <laughs> that's 18 in the military. So. <laughs> um, have you been back to Italy since? Sadly, no. You know, so uh, I, I enjoyed the parts that I, that I was able to visit, uh, but I will get back. I will get back. <laughs> uh, Billy, you received your master's in creative writing with Chatham University in 2015. What inspired you to pursue writing and why did you start writing about your military experience? Uh, gosh, I, I did. I, I received my master's in, in 2015 um, and, and probably two years before that, or maybe three, uh, my daughter I was my daughter's, one of my daughter's Girl Scout troop leaders, and one of the other parents um, in the Girl Scout troop was a, a playwright, and she was writing a play about uh, the female experience in the military, and uh, asked me um, some questions and asked me if I would tell her some of my experiences overseas, and so I did, and uh, in the course of explaining to her what the military was all about, um, uh, she asked what it was like to eat uh, food or eat, you know, meals. And I explained to her what an MRE was, what a meal ready to eat is, uh, and how they were terrible. And that um, the worst thing that someone could do was uh, what we call rat fuck them. And that's when someone opens them and then pulls out what they want and leaves uh, all the undesirable things. And so I used that word and she loved it and, and asked me to write a story. And I, I was very hesitant. Um, uh, and I did, and then she uh, encouraged me to apply to Chatham, uh, and so I did. And and those those stories uh, were the basis of my thesis. Very interesting. Um, and yes, I hear that MREs are not very tasty. Oh, terrible, terrible. <laughs> um. So that piece that you wrote, uh, did you kind of write it for yourself, or was that what you used to like? Put in for your submission to get into university like had you really done much writing before that I, that's a great question i hadn't done any writing before uh, that particular piece uh, and she asked me to write uh, that piece because of the language and because it was so foreign to the civilian uh, world um, and uh, the director of the program loved it and loved i guess the what i brought was so different from you know an average 22 or 23 year old um, that it spoke to them uh, at the university uh, and then they allowed and um, really helped me along uh, in, in getting these thoughts down on paper uh, in a cohesive way um, um, because I really hadn't unpacked them since I had deployed and most of my stories were about deployment. That's very cool how you fell into writing. Uh, so your first publication with PTB started with volume six. How did you learn about Proud to Be and what compelled you to submit? Well, again, you know, I, I, was, I was very slow to, to write, to the process of writing and to putting my work out there. I think maybe like a lot of uh, individuals, I didn't think it was any good. I didn't think anyone would want to read it. Um, and my thesis director really helped me along. And he was the one who uh, had heard about uh, the program and urged me uh, to submit uh, a portion of my, my thesis um, that I was still working on and was still uh, trying to flesh out. Um, and so he was the one, my thesis director. And there's really still 
been uh, very involved in, in, in you know, um, ensuring that I continue to write and, and submit my work. That's great. And that was your first time, like, submitting to a was, yeah. publication. That was the very first, that was the very first uh, 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 publication that I submitted to, yes. Well, I'm glad that you found us. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And for our listeners, uh, Proud to Be is published in partnership with Southeast Missouri State University Press, and it is a juried competition with a monetary prize in each of the five submission categories. And um, Billy, your piece, Going Home, was the essay winner. So uh, not too shabby your first like submission, and and you were the winner in the in the essay category. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, uh, would you mind reading a few uh, excerpts from that essay? Um, feel free to set it up and talk about uh, the intricacies behind this piece. Absolutely. Um, yeah, thank you. It was, um, um, you know, I, I guess I'm one of those people who says I'm never going to do a thing and then I do a thing and then I end up doing well. And so <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, all the, all the urgings over the years, it's, it's tough to say you were right, but I appreciate that from them and that you guys enjoyed the piece as well. So as you said, this is uh, going home. Uh, this was written about my first deployment in 2003. Uh, and that deployment, if people, you know, um, can remember, you know, that was the first time that, that we had deployed since the Gulf War. Uh, it was the first deployment after 9-11. And America and the world was a far different place. And um, the atmosphere that we live in now is nothing like 2001, 2002, 2003. And so we, my company uh, had deployed for 10 months. Uh, None of us had deployed before. Um, We were tasked with uh, guarding convoys from Kuwait into Iraq. And so uh, when the war was over, and by that, I mean that at the time, President Bush was on the aircraft carrier and said, victory, mission accomplished. We still stayed in the desert for a good three to four months. And so uh, we, were, we were beaten down. We were ready to go home. And so the war, per se, was over. Um, but our, the assault on our senses was not. And we were very, um, we were just exhausted. So this piece uh, speaks to the day that we find out uh, we were going to go home, and then uh, the first couple of weeks um, back here in Pittsburgh, uh, and that's what I wrote about. So I'll read some of that now. I awake this morning with no reason to believe life in the desert is going to be any different. The rising sun gives no inclination. The sweltering heat continues its slow convection of our existence. My water bottle sock swings methodically against the side of the tent above my head. Reveille. Mav yells from across the abyss of the tent. We rise, clad in green shorts and green t-shirts as prisoners do, aware of the routine and helpless against it. I walk to morning chow as I do every day. I eat powdered eggs and drink watered down coffee as I do every day. My Marines and I make our way to the morning formation and stand in the warmth of the early morning Iraqi sun waiting for the word of the day, the same as we do every day. First Sergeant Wagner calls us to attention and asks us for a school circle. We sound off in a loud hurrah and make our way into a half moon around him. Good morning, Bravo Company, Wagner says, spitting dip juice residue into a paper cup. Good morning, First Sergeant, we reply in a thunderous flash of full-fledged false motivation. So the word of the day is we're going home. Silence fills the physical space between Wagner and his Marines. 
I stand there like a twice beaten dog, waiting for the other hand to come crashing down on me. Bravo Company returns to our tent, a makeshift home for so many months. I sit on my cot, overcome by what this means, what I need to do to get from this place to the next place, and then to the next place. My mind races as it always does. My leg begins to twitch. It twitches with the drug-induced want for more, want for home. My platoon runs about the tent like wild animals. They throw toilet paper across the abyss, paper the walls with it. They dance on cots with rifles. They dance on cots with each other. They roar, I roar. The typewriter in my mind click clacks as it puts a period after the words combat operations. This imaginary typewriter rips that page from itself, placing it on the desk in my mind, lifts the keeper and feeds a new sheet of paper in. It types new words, going home. These first days back, I spend a lot of time at home. My family goes to work. We eat dinner every night. We talk over each other, cut off, cut each other off mid-sentence. We've become accustomed, unaccustomed rather, to our own rhythms and patterns of speech. We have to relearn each other. I slowly work the word fuck and its use as an adjective, verb, adverb, and noun out of my daily interactions with them. My daughter and I play until she can no longer keep her eyes open. We color together and build blanket forts. She holds my hand and directs me around her room. She shows me everything she has made while I've been gone. I think she's afraid I'll leave again. She makes me sleep beside her at night. Her hair resting on my chest smells so clean, so utterly untainted. I walk and drive through our neighborhood of my youth. It is the same place I left, and yet it is not. I see the faces of the shop owners I knew before I left. We smile and I answer the same questions repeatedly. How was it? Were you scared? Did you have to shoot anyone? They ask, I give them vague responses. The world I am learning kept spinning while I was gone. It seems to have spun to a place I may never fit into again. My thankfulness for home melts away like so much winter snow. My guilt for returning when so many did not grows exponentially. When I hear myself bellyache over missing the beginning of my favorite television show or that the ice tray wasn't refilled with water, why did I get to come back, I ask? What is it I was meant to do? Questions repeat on a skipping record player in my mind. This new chapter in my life feels bereft of words. I am a soldier without a war to fight. A skill set unleashed for combat now struggles to find meaning in a world without war. There doesn't seem to be any need for a platoon sergeant without a platoon to lead. All that remains is the guilt. Daily, the box in my head rattles. The box I filled and set aside over there, always an issue to deal with first, another mission or another Marine that needed my attention. The sleepless nights in Iraq traded for sleepless nights here. As far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a Marine because it meant I'd be just like my dad, raising my hand to put on the uniform and protect those I love. It meant going to war, sure, but no hero, but the hero always came home. At least the hero I always identified with. Nobody I ever played war with ever willingly chose to be the guy who gets it first. No, the hero returned victorious, made a glib remark, or gave a steely-eyed glare towards the camera, and then up came the music to usher said hero off screen towards a Hollywood sunset and his virtuous maiden. The movies never showed the hero days or weeks or even years after the war. No, that was always left out. And as the bard puts it, therein lies the rub. People seem to hate the war but love the war hero. Nobody seems to know what to do with the hero once the war is over, including the hero. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you so much, Billy. Um, Absolutely. I've had the honor of seeing you read this essay on stage. 
and the juxtaposition between that excitement of going home, like carrying everybody to wild animals in their tents to this really like delicate human that you're coming home to your daughter um, and that reality of adjustment after deployment um, and all the thoughts and questions that creep in. Um, but yeah, I remember you vividly reading that last sentence. Uh, Nobody seems to know what to do with the hero once the war is over, including yeah. the hero. Um, such powerful words. And I feel that this is not um, isolated just to you, um, mm -hmm. but to other people who have served. Um, so what words of insight would you have for anyone returning from service who may be feeling this? I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I truly do. Um, I think it's, it's, it's challenging because uh, maybe like so many uh, who say experience um, the eve of a thing, the eve of Christmas, uh, there's so much promise in that uh, eve and we, we build up so much uh, expectation that, that Christmas morning or that morning can never live up to. And so uh, in my experience, uh, I shared a Humvee with, with two to three people uh, and we, we knew each other inside and out. And we talked about the restaurants and the things we wanted to do. And when we came home, uh, the world kept spinning. And so um, all those wants and all those, those feelings had nowhere to go. Um, and whether you could spend time back in your hometown or on your base uh, with all of your friends, um, the military doesn't really bring you up to share your emotion to 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 show that you know uh, you might be afraid or feel alone and so it's a missed opportunity um, for so many who come home who feel that sense and so my advice would be uh, to write down you know what before you come home what you want to do and what you expect it to be um, and then revisit that list and keep writing that list um, um, to set up a routine uh, because we are we are nothing else routine robots in the military and so setting up a routine that when you come home you can adhere to uh, can be a way of easing yourself back into the, the pool of being home uh, without that drop off of expectation that so many men uh, experience and then turn to a vice that can be harmful or dangerous. These are really good suggestions. Uh, thank you Billy for sharing uh, your thoughts and experiences. Let's explore uh, another essay in your most recent volume, which aligns perfectly with the eve of, and it's called The Night Before, and it's published in volume 10. It's a longer essay, so feel free to read a handful of excerpts and maybe talk about the personal significance behind this piece. Absolutely. Um... So this piece, uh, you know, the first the first essay was going home, um, which seemed easier to write about uh, because it was a lot like uh, a Christmas Eve scenario. And the night before uh, was harder and came later because uh, those those the, the week prior to the uh, invasion um, was a supercharged week of emotion um, and fear and anxiety um, that uh, were harder to to tap into. Um, and so this, this essay speaks to that. It speaks to uh, what I said earlier about um, October 
2011 uh, where, where, America, where there are so many American flags on almost every home. And there was almost an expectation that we, someone was going to pay for 9-11. And so, um, like so many, you know, we, I found myself in a, in a cot in a tent in the desert before I realized um, that that was occurring. Um, because you know, 9/11 was such and is still um, so so visceral, you know. Um, and so uh, I was sitting on this cot in my tent, looking at my Marines, um, and didn't know what was going to happen. Um, uh, the night before I I left Pittsburgh, one of my uh, Marines' mothers shook my hand, uh, and she asked me if I was going to take care of her son. Um, you know, and I reassured her that I would, but I had no idea. And now this was the, 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 the you know, the, the moment before the curtain would open and we would go out on stage um, and go fight this war. And so I was, I was very, um, was very nervous about what would happen in this next 24 hours. So this piece speaks to that. And this is called again, the night before. I sit on a sand bucket cot cleaning my rifle in a crowded tent surrounded by 90 or so other Marines in the Kuwaiti desert. It's just before evening chow. Rumor has it we push north tomorrow. They, the country we've come here to wage war against. I am scared, period, point blank. I feel as though, with the rush of excitement, I've been caught up in the wave of patriotism that swept across the Purple Mountain's majesty. The amount of time between me holding a remote control in the armchair of my living room and me holding a rifle on this cot in this tent feels like no time at all. While I wipe and re-wipe, the same spot on my rifle, I sit here and keep replaying the last few weeks in my mind. I try to organize everything we've done so far, like in packing my gear. There's a reassurance in the packing and repacking of gear, that sense of completion that checking things off a list brings. I repack my thoughts carefully. The worst part of the day by far is noon, when the sun positions itself directly overhead and seems to reach down and grab me by the shoulders. At noon, being inside this tent is as close to unbearable as one might imagine. The relentless heat forces us to eat our prepackaged meals on a hillside that runs the length of the camp. We convene behind our tent regularly for this midday chow. Our second day here, Eddie and I perched ourselves on the hillside and started in on lunch. As we began, we felt the whisper of moisture being carried on the slightest of breezes. Chow seemed tolerable until I looked up and saw the shit removal truck hosing down a pair of portajons upwind from us. The truck became known as Pooh Bear. Pooh Bear and the Arabian Christopher Robin, who manned the behemoth truck, began to represent the dichotomy of our situation, the ever-shifting balance I faced between keep going and I fucking quit. This Pooh Bear driver, clad in black, knee-high rubber work boots, presumably swimming in feet sweat, a raggedy torn kerchief wrapped around his nose and mouth, barely shielding his senses, his fucking equipment meter pegging out in the red, enter his relief, the knowledge that he will stay here, stay safe once the war begins while well, every other Marine in this camp will be heading north to futures unknown. Suddenly, the Pooh Bear driver's job seems kind of enviable. The idea that things could always be worse begins to take root in my brain housing group. I remind myself to be thankful for what I have here now, because Noon Chow Pooh Bear missed in Kuwait is still in Kuwait. We make our way to the border. I drive the Humvee, and simultaneously I watch myself drive the Humvee. My mind floats above me trying to reconcile what my eyes take in. I am suddenly the Pooh Bear driver. I feel lucky that I am sitting in this vehicle alive and not one of the dead we pass. 
I already miss Pooh Bear Mist. We roll through another town. The infantry engages the enemy up ahead of us. Rockets streak across the horizon. Flares illuminate the early morning sky. A mosque blares the morning calls to prayer. We have crossed the border and we are still alive. I flex the muscles in my feet and in my ankles. I flex the muscles of my thighs and of my calves. I wiggle my toes. I do this for fear that will be the last chance to do so. Along with the gear I'm issued, I carry with me a measureless weight of expectation and fear, burdens I cannot shake. I carry a fear of landmines and sniper fire, the fear of being blown up, taken prisoner, or being shot. I carry the fear that one of these things will happen to one of my Marines. Each fear cycles through my mind repeatedly on an endless loop. I drive on while the sun rises on my first day in country. Thank you. Thank you so much, Billy. Um, Absolutely. I feel like reading Coming Home and parts of the night before back to back are really nice because you have a way of expressing uh, the, the feelings and the emotions and the energy uh, behind it where this piece does like really, um, I'm also an empath, so I pick up on feelings a lot, but I get like, I, was, I get nervous when you read this piece and like that anxiousness is there. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you still kind of weave in a little bit of entertainment as well with um, Pooh Bear, <laughs> the driver, like, um, but yeah, so I feel like you have your um, own um, style of writing. Um, would you explain your style of writing and where the style comes from and how you go about choosing a, a theme to write on? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a great question. And, and um, I, I, I wonder if, if, you know, like you, because it's my own style, like a style of dress, like it just is who you are. Um, um, but I would say that uh, after 28 years in, in the military, having to or trying to explain to young Marines how to do a thing, that I would, I would say my style is Barney style. So in the military, we would always have to break things down Barney style so that, you know, everyone on the spectrum of understanding could understand. Um, and so I think that I write in a way that, um, and I am, I'm so glad you mentioned being an empath. I think that I'm always aware of, you know, the, the, my five senses in a situation. And when I write about a topic, I, I can remember that the senses, you know, the touch and the smell and, and what I heard. And so I try to be detail oriented in, in bringing the reader in so that they can see a visual picture of, of the story um, and break it down so that a veteran who's experienced it says, like, I, I totally remember what that was like and I can feel that. Um, and where a civilian doesn't feel left out because, you know, I'm using a lot of, a lot of um, um, lingo that they've never heard of. So uh, I think I, I try to break things down to be understanding uh, or understandable um, and hope that it, it is, so. Yeah, I feel like Proud to Be gets to serve kind of two purposes for uh, the fellow Marines that read this mm -hmm. and maybe we're serving that during that time and they can, they can feel it, they can sense it, but also as someone like me who has not served um, your, your sense of description, uh, like makes me feel like I'm right there, like sensing it and feeling so. it. I know that that feeling will never be anything like what you felt, but it provides me with a sense of perspective of how hard that time was. And, um, and you do a really good job too, of 
um, kind of like you were talking at the very beginning when you were talking with your um, friend who convinced you to go into writing. Um, yeah, there's a lot of terminology and a lot of like inside lingo uh, that right. comes with serving and you do a really good job of making that approachable, so. And, and I appreciate that, I really do. And, and I would say that, um, you know, uh, you know, when people love, people know law and order and we love the courtroom scene and we know that court isn't like that, you know, but like, that's what you can think of, but the courtroom scene. And so people watch war movies or war um, plays or what have you. And the focus that I feel has always been like the combat, you know, the, the, the shooting. Um, and, and that is obviously um, um, intense. Um, but but on, a, on a scale, that's like 10% of your experience. Um, working up the night before or the going home, that's the 90. Um, and that's where most of us live. And so I, 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 I like to write about the things that, that those other outlets don't focus on because, you know, um, obviously, you know, hearing a bullet come past you is very scary or pulling a trigger is very scary. Uh, but so is all the moments, so are all the moments up to that point. So that's where my focus would be and why I try to focus on those things in my, in my writing. Yeah, absolutely. Um... And I think that's something about we're, we're on volume 10 of Proud to Be. Yeah. Uh, this is 10 years worth of, of stories that may not otherwise be told. And they're, they're yeah. told from these really intimate perspectives that give you a better understanding of that day-to-day -day or post-war uh, post experience or post-service experience. And um, I think each one of those adds value to our nation's uh, wartime experience. So I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, thank you again for continuing yeah. to submit and being a part of this and telling your stories. Um, so I believe it was in May that you may have retired as a sergeant major of the U.S. Yeah. Marine Corps. So. Uh, what is it like to retire after 28 years of service and what do you miss and what don't you miss? It's, um, I, I did. I retired uh, in last May um, um, as a sergeant major and, and, and it's, it's a lot to take in. Um, um, I remember telling people at the time and even still, you know, I was, I was so fortunate in my career I was able to serve in active duty and I was able to serve in the reserves. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was able uh, to, to reach the rank of Sergeant Major. Uh, I was able to uh, deploy. Um, and so all the things that I, I could have wanted to do, I was lucky enough to do and able to do and return from. Um, so so I, I do feel, I, do, I feel as though the, the, the book of my career can close and I don't look back um, on my service. Um, what I miss are the Marines. I miss, um, I miss the moment of understanding when, when a young Marine doesn't know how to do a thing and then you tell them and then you show them and then they can do it. I miss that. I miss um, being able to grow leaders, you know, um, who are able to then go out and, and be leaders to their other young Marines. Uh, I miss that. Um, I don't miss the bureaucracy of it. Um, I think like any job, maybe um, 
the red tape, the you know the the the, the nonsensical things that that get in the way of taking care of people. Um, I don't miss. Um, um, I I said at my retirement that I will um, I won't miss the circus, but I'll miss some of the clowns, and I think that's the best way I can put it. Is there anything you would do differently after after serving for almost three decades? That's a, what would I do differently. That's a great question. Um, I probably would have explored Italy a little more. Um, I don't think that I, you know, I was I was so young, and I really, you know, became an adult and became a, a grown man um, as I grew in the Marine Corps, and so. Um, uh, with with the, the the benefit of like as the yogi now, like I would have appreciated the moments um, when they occurred um, when I was on active duty, or you know I got to ski in the Alps once, um, and of course, you know we made two or three runs and then found ourselves in the lodge. So maybe in in retrospect, I should have appreciated the Alps more than the inside of a lodge. Uh, and so I could say that for a lot of a lot of things. Um, um, what I do differently, I I would maybe um, there's definitely times that I micromanaged people more than I should have um, because I was afraid, you know, um, being in Iraq and 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 managing people and, and having that fear and also the lack of of expression of that fear because you're in the military. Um, um, obviously, with the with with hindsight. You know, I would have allowed people to um, um, to learn on their own, um, even though at the time it seemed far too dangerous for what he was doing. Um, so that's what I think what I would do differently. I don't regret anything um, except maybe, you know, appreciating the moment when I'm in the moment. Yeah. Well, I feel like you had a great responsibility at a pretty young <laughs> age. Uh, yeah. And... Um, you know, the beautiful part is, um, maybe this is the last part of, you know, your life where you are, um, going back to the Alps, back to Italy, you are, um, really just embracing those experiences. So, and in a place where you don't have to. Oh, it's so, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's that feeling when, you know, when people leave work for the day. And that, you know, there's like, a, everyone who has walked through a door that's like hit them in the back. And being able to get out that door before it hits you is like the feeling of leaving. <laughs> um, of like, I, you know, it's, I, I enjoyed it. I'm thankful. I'm, I'm honored to have served, uh, but it is someone else's uh, job now. And so I, I, can, I can give it to them uh, without any, any regret, for sure. Well, I do feel like... Um retirement or not, you're still doing awesome things right now. Um, you were recently a military consultant and actor for Pittsburgh's public theater's production of A Few Good Men. Uh, you mm -hmm. have appeared in the TV series Kill Point, and you've also played a Navy SEAL in the movie Captain Phillips starring Tom Hanks. So would you mind talking a little bit about how you got into acting and the kind of roles you like to play? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, one thing I would always tell my Marines, I would always, um, I would always tell them, I would ask them, and I, I saw, ask you, Lisa, I'll say, um, do you eat soup with a spoon or a fork? 
Uh, it depends on the soup. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll say a runny soup. Do you eat a runny soup with a spoon or a fork? Usually a spoon. Okay. And, and we'll say French toast. Would you use a spoon or a fork for French toast? It depends how much toppings on it and how much I want to scoop. <laughs> um, um, we'll just say um, not a lot of toppings, like your basic crunchy French toast. I would probably use a fork for that. Right. Or so, straight up use my hands. <laughs> awesome. Also awesome, right? And that outside the box sinker, which I love. So I would always say to them, you know, a spoon is great and a fork is great, but a spork is, is better. So be a spork. Um, and so being able to have been a fireman and a Marine and a writer and an actor at the same time um, really spoke to uh, the spork in me. And it allowed me to, to be expressive in places where I wasn't able to be expressive. Um, it allowed me to, to manage some of the, you know, um, um, experiences, whether it had been in the fire department or in the Marine Corps. Um, and it was allowed me to transition. So, you know, I, I was able to write through the service um, retire and still write. Um, um, and I think that that for me was easier and maybe for some people to, to have a crossover vice, you know, having a break in something, you know, feeling that loss and then trying to start something new. Um, so I have a twin sister who, who, who told me I should, um, try out for a role. Um, and I did, um, uh, and I, I, I started to act young, um, in small commercials and, and things like that. Um, and so to, to the listeners, I, I had an agent. And so I tell people, because they would always pull me aside. No one ever asked me in a group. The Marines would pull me aside and say, I heard you have an agent. How do you do that? And how can they get involved? And I'd say, get one because uh, you never know. You know, it's, it's whoever the product is looking for. Um, if they wanted, you know, an Italian female for a part, they wouldn't come to me. They'd come to you, you know. Um, so um, people would always, or my Marines would, would get wrapped around how they looked. And I would always tell them that, you know, Steve Buscemi gets work all the time and he's no George Clooney. So, um, that's how I got into acting and, and into writing really, um, uh, being able to utilize it as an outlet and seeing it as such. Um, and so, uh, to, to emphasize that point, my agent asked me, uh, she said, are you in the military? And I said, yes. And she said, are you built like a Navy SEAL? And I said, absolutely. And, um, you know, sometime later I found myself in a movie as a Navy SEAL with Tom Hanks. So um, it doesn't hurt to try. Um, and that's what I would say uh, to anyone who, who thinks about it or is interested in doing it is just try. Um, and you don't know what will happen. I think it's interesting too. You were in a, a play called The Guys, um, yeah. which is... Uh, was written after 9-11, uh, mm -hmm. and I do believe you might have even played a uh, firefighter firefighter yeah, in it, did. so very much I like did. your real life. <laughs> yeah, so and they get so, so in A Few Good Men or in as a Marine or, or in the guise as a firefighter, um, it was obviously easy to, to portray those roles, having all those experiences um, um, uh, to, to, to call upon. Um, um, and so, and so being able to do those are, 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 are safe, you know, experiences. And then also going outside of that to do other roles um, um, can speak to the, 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 the spork in, in anyone as it does to me. Uh, so do you feel like there's a different benefit in acting versus writing? Um, you get something different out of each I, I do. I think, I think every 
every job to include the military of the Marine Corps, the fire department has an art to it and a science obviously to it. Um, and the arts do as well. Uh, I, I think, um, that there's definitely an art and a science to acting and to writing. You know, you just can't start putting words together and just send it out to hopefully get published. So uh, for acting, you know, acting is like a, a break because I don't have to focus on my own work. Um, I can just use someone else's dialogue and, and be like clay and just kind of take a, a, a mental break from firefighting or being a marine or writing whereas writing you know is far more personal um clearly and so it it speaks to to you know wanting to be in control um or wanting to let someone else just mold you and so i enjoy them both and then obviously totally for totally different reasons I, and i won't be the first to, to think it or say it you know you're you're very naked because you're so um vested you know and there's such a fear that people won't understand or won't take your submission or will say this is dumb or whatever. Um, and so it's far more scary, if not as scary, uh, as standing on a stage and, and reading lines while people, you know, peer at you. Benefits and also fears. So. Absolutely. And you've done both. You've gotten up yeah. on a stage and you've read your, your own words. So I think. Yeah. <laughs> that's, no, that's like both. It's like crazy. <laughs> Uh, so how do you view uh, the collaboration of veterans in the arts? Um, you know, the collaboration of, of veterans in the arts, I think that, you know, they're, it, 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 to me, it goes without saying. I think that the arts um, in any form, you know, speaks to the human condition. Um, um, and there are, are paintings that, that, that just speak to people. Um, and clearly film and television um, and, and words, all they, they're all just telling our story uh, so that we can feel less alone, you know? Um, and I think that the military life, be it on deployment or uh, and so many of your writers who, who served between wars have to deal with that sense of themselves or to the mother who has to watch her son drive away or watch their daughter fly away I think that veterans in the arts, you know, are like peanut butter and, and jelly. They just go together because people want to know that they're not alone and people want to know what it's like to do what we do. Um, and I think that we play that down far too often um, and we don't express and explore what it's like so that the people around us have an understanding as to why we are why we are. Absolutely. So beautifully stated. I feel in essence, we are all looking for awareness and connection. And this can come from sharing stories in print or on a stage or even just over a cup of coffee. Absolutely. You know, I think it's about connection and we want to all connect. Um, um, and so, and so military writing has this inherent vulnerability about it. Um, that allows the reader or listener um, to become very close to the writer um, in a situation where they're about to drive across and invade a country, um, you know, within the safety of their home. And so I think that's how they can speak and, and work together, you know. We kind of touched on the being able to relate and connect from the comfort of your own home, but is there anything you want to add to that? I mean, I, I would I would add that, you know, I, I truly believe that that everyone has a story 
a perspective, um, an experience um, that is worth telling. Um, um, and I would say, you know, there's probably a story that 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 people have honed over years at cocktail parties that they tell about. Um, and so my advice would be to write that story down, no matter how long it is or what it's about. I, I just read about a porter john. So I would say write that story down and then revisit it and cut it in half. Use half the words and then send it to someone to read and then ask someone what they like, what they don't like, what they want to learn more of and what they can use less of. And then they should, they should reach out to proud to be, they should reach out to a publication and just see, uh, because I think that people will find uh, that their experience isn't so singular and that someone else out there has felt that or has experienced that or also has a story to tell. And I think that that begins the conversation. So I would say, I hope that the, that, that the listener knows that I, I want to hear their story. You know, I, I wrote one of these stories as, a, as an E6, um, and I wrote one of these stories as an E7. And most of the veterans live between like E3 and E5, E6. And so if a, if a sergeant major can write a story, then anybody can. And I, I urge you to, because it's important. That would be my advice. I think that's really wonderful advice. And, Absolutely. Um, I know that it can be so scary and challenging to, to write your story down and to share that story. But I think that your approach to it is that rewriting of it really allows you to have the ownership of it. Um, so yeah, thank you. Before closing, what is in store for the future? So for my future, um, more writing, more rewriting, um, um, telling other stories about my deployments and the rest of my time in the service uh, to try to, to try to reach out and, and have people understand you know, what the perspective was that I had. Um, and that's, that's what's in my future. Hopefully maybe some more stage acting. Uh, and stage acting is so much different than film acting. There's such a, a in the moment um, necessity to stage acting. And film acting obviously is, 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 is so much fun in its own right. So I was, would like to continue to be a sport now that I um, have moved beyond the Marine Corps chapter of my life that I did for so long. You know, this new chapter of writing about it um, I'm very excited about. Well, maybe in the future, there will be a, uh, a playwright put out by, by you. <laughs> and then we'll see. We'll see. A screenplay, it'll be, yeah. It'll, yeah, it'll be called Sports, though. Coming to theaters <laughs> soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, Billy, I had a great time chatting with you. So um, thank you for sharing your stories, your you. continued participation in Proud to Be, and your creativity in all its different forms. Thank you so much, Lisa, for this opportunity for Proud to Be. Um, I really, I, I truly appreciate it. I really do. So thank you. If you would like to read Billy's PTB pieces, you can purchase Proud to Be volumes one through 10 at mohumanities.org backslash veterans. This podcast is brought to you by the Missouri Humanities. Please help us share these stories by sharing episodes with friends, family, and on your social media platforms. If you are listening on an app, don't forget to follow us and leave a review. I'm Lisa Carrico, and we all hope you will tune in for future episodes of Proud to Be as we interview PTB contributors to discover the stories behind their PTB contributions. <laughs>